On this episode of Forge and Anvil, New Mexico's governor has declared that guns are illegal despite the Second Amendment existing. Next, Enrique Tarrio was sentenced to 22 years in prison, while the man who ran over and killed a teen with his car for being a Republican is getting five years in jail. Finally, a tech news magazine thinks you're selfish and immoral if you want to have your own children. All this and more, so stick around. Welcome in, everybody, to the Forge and Anvil podcast. My name is Connor. I am host of this podcast. We are joined tonight by a first-time guest, Dan. So, Dan, I'll go ahead and uh, have you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me for the to the podcast, Connor. My name is Dan Lyman. I've been a correspondent for InfoWars for years. I run InfoWars Europe, and I also run an immigration-only news outlet called BorderHawk. Uh, borderhawk.news is the website there and you can find me on twitter at real dan lyman excellent well welcome glad to have you and i'm joined as always by my regular co-host michael aper hello friends as always i'm a student of scripture and i'd like to see the righteousness of god restored to the people of god one step at a time awesome all righty everyone well if you are watching this on Twitter, feel free to jump over to Rumble and YouTube if you want to be a part of the chat. We will be taking your chats throughout the night as they come in and are relevant to the conversation. We might not get to all of them, but uh, either way, please join us. We love when you guys are a part of the conversation. And if you are listening to the playback on Spotify or Google Podcast, be sure to catch us sometime when we go live for Monday Night Lives on Rumble or YouTube or Twitter. There's no chat feature on Twitter to my knowledge yet, so uh, feel free to join us on the other two platforms if you want to send in your chat. Feel free to like this video, give it five stars, do all the things that you're supposed to do. We appreciate it. We've got a lot of important stories to get to tonight, but uh, we have really pressing news before we get to that. Michael, please tell the audience what the heck you did this weekend. This weekend, I attended, I, so I live near Lexington, Central Kentucky, where, as you know, there are many races, many uh, horse races specifically. The equestrian world is vibrant out here. And there's a lot of money in that. At one of the local race arenas called Red Mile, there was an event that was hosted that I attended for wiener dog racing, where, in fact, we took dachshunds, and people registered them. There were, honestly, there were hundreds of wiener dogs. I didn't know that so many wiener dogs existed. But we took dachshunds. There were also corgis and bulldogs that each in their individual uh, breed were racing against one another, all fighting for that wonderful trophy that was in the shape of a fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> that is excellent. So was this... <laughs> Was there a lot of betting on the wiener dogs? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I know that it was made accessible. To what extent they were actually betting, I don't know. But I know uh, the participants paid $20 each just to get in there and race their wiener dogs, which was, all proceeds were going to the Humane Society to care for animals or something. But yeah, the, I know there was betting. I didn't participate myself. I was didn't have a leg in the game. But it was a good time for sure. Many, many dogs, lots of cute fluffiness and random temperamental outbursts of barking and yipping. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, 
if you guys haven't been to a wiener dog race, you guys apparently all need to do that. So get it, get over to Kentucky. Apparently, it's worth it. Honestly, when I I found out about it from a friend of mine who sent me a link on Facebook, and I expected it to be, you know, like maybe twenty dogs, maybe thirty if it was big, and then fifty, sixty people. There were hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of people, if not over a thousand. I mean, there was there was a gigantic amount of people and nearly every family had a dog with them as well. I was astonished by the turnout. It was quite an event. That's wonderful. <laughs> National news for sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, now that we have the important news out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our first story. So this is from the Daily Wire. New Mexico governor suspends people's right to carry guns in Albuquerque. New Mexico Democrat Governor Michelle Grisham banned people from being able to carry guns in Albuquerque and the surrounding county excuse me, for at least the next 30 days after a kid was killed during a road rage incident. Grisham signed an executive order on Thursday declaring that gun violence was a public health emergency in the Democrat-controlled state. On Friday, Grisham unilaterally suspended open and concealed carry laws in Albuquerque and the surrounding area. She said that she could further lengthen or renew her order, which was immediately slammed by many as being unconstitutional. Grisham effectively admitted that her order might be unconstitutional when she conceded that she might not win legal challenges filed against the order. Quote, now I am sure as I go through the rest of this, there will be a lot of questions about whether or not we think we have the legal right to do that. I am sure that before you write this, there will be a legal challenge. End quote. So obviously this story blew up over the weekend. If you weren't paying attention to the news cycle, this was pretty ridiculous to see that uh, essentially a governor just unilaterally decided by executive order that uh, gun rights are no longer a thing in the state of New Mexico, or at least in the county. Of course, it's not necessarily statewide. There's a lot of, uh, um, of different angles you can take on the actual executive order itself. But either way, it was pretty hilarious to me to see such a blatant power grab because uh, this is not the first time we've seen this, of course, under the guise of a public health emergency. Uh, if that rings a bell to anyone about something that maybe happened not so long ago, something big where a lot of emergency powers was grabbed over a public health emergency. You know, I'm not referring to anything in particular here, obviously. Um, but uh, either way, I thought this was ridiculous just to see the fact that uh, <laughs> this executive thought that they could get away with it. And uh, we've seen it's really starting to blow up in the governor's face. We've seen a lot of different protests come out and we'll get into uh, more of that as we continue to hash out this story. But to me, it was actually a bit of a white pill. Now, I think a lot of people probably got black pilled by this story. But to me, it was a white pill because this is one of those moments where they hit the gas too heavy. Uh, they really, I think, are trying to go too far, too fast. And uh, a lot of individuals, including uh, liberal Democratic politicians and activists, are even condemning the governor for these actions. So that's kind of a refreshing sight to see. So to me, it's a white pill because whenever they push too far too fast, a lot more people wake up, which is something that we are in desperate need of. We need normal people to wake up and realize that your rights are under attack. And uh, unfortunately, you have to be vigilant if you want to keep all of your rights. But Dan, I'll turn it over to you to get your initial reaction to the story. 
Well, yeah, as you kind of alluded to, this is an obvious progression, especially in hindsight from, you know, the other public health emergencies that we've been subjected to in the past couple of years. Um, but also, you know, it is a, a strong overreach. And even, you know, someone like David Hogg was was pushing back against this. I think they said, you know, this is a bit too much uh, all at once. Um, but I have a different take on it. I think, you know, those things all taken into consideration um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the first of many such attempts like this. Obviously, they're going to, you know, this is a beta test. They're going to see what the reaction is to it. They, uh, they're going to gauge, you know, how the actual in the streets reaction is and then what it looks like when it, you know, it enters into the courts and when there are, are legal challenges filed against it. But why would we think that someone like uh, Eric Adams wouldn't try this in New York City mm -hmm. or perhaps Gavin Newsom? in California, somewhere down the line. Uh, I think that uh, even if they hadn't all uh, coordinated this behind the scenes, I pro probably a lot of them are holding their breath saying, let's see how this plays out because we've seen just how much American citizens are willing to take in the name of a public health emergency. And uh, if this picks up any steam whatsoever, uh, I feel like this is just gonna be one of the first of many. And you know, as we saw with the previous uh, public health emergencies, you know, they weren't they they weren't scared to go for this kind of a, a massive power grab all at once and kind of see how it would play out. And of course, in some places there was pushback in entire states. You had kind of a scaling back of that, like in Florida, where, you know, initially the whole country kind of moved in one direction during the first few weeks of, of that whole uh, health issue. And um, and then in some places, like there was enough pushback and it kind of got, you know, pulled back a little bit. And maybe people like Governor DeSantis or, or local mayors, local sheriffs felt like, you know what, this is pretty unconstitutional, to say the least. And maybe we're not going to go so hard. But in other places like in California or like in New Mexico, I mean, they kept the pedal to the metal in those states for a long time. And uh, no amount of protesting from, you know, minority conservative groups or minority, you know, patriot groups really scared them in any way. So uh, I wouldn't, you know, be surprised to see them keep trying uh, stuff like this. And this public health emergency will be used for many other issues, such as climate change, uh, such as, you know, fossil fuels, such as, uh, you know, freedom of movement. That will be challenged again soon, I'm sure, under a different guise. But they'll keep saying that it's a public health emergency and see what they can get away with, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with your take. I, I don't think you're wrong. I think the only thing that I would say in this particular instance is that, for some reason, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for this, but for some reason, one of the things that tends to still be incredibly unpopular is gun control. Even among um, left-wing individuals, like a left-wing voting base still finds gun control to be a pretty a pretty much a losing issue. Obviously, there's a lot of politicians that are um, absolutely platforming gun control um, for their campaigns. But either way, I, I still think that um, among the actual voting populace, even left-wing individuals are, are pro-Second Amendment. Um, now, there might be some nuances as to some restrictions that they want on that. And maybe those individuals, because they already are okay with some infringement, might you know not take this governor's uh, edict to, as seriously as maybe uh, we would take it. Um, but either way, your point is still absolutely spot on that this is going to be a a um, template that will be rep replicated. And if it's not for gun control, it's definitely going to be replicated for, uh, you know, for public health or for um, climate change, you know, whatever the case may be. And unfortunately, I, I think we have not seen the end of it. And so sadly, I, I think you're spot on on that. I, I had another thought, but it just escaped me. But Michael, feel free to jump in here. Yeah. 
I mean, as I read through this and, and as we discuss this, it comes to mind that so much of this is just purely illogical and we come to expect that from the public forum anymore is just absolute nonsense that for some reason is real. But I do think it's worthwhile to recognize ignorance for what it is. So first and foremost, I mean, a lot of this has been, it's, it's been advertised as, okay, so there's a road rage manslaughter situation where somebody was shot, probably not that the child that died probably was not the intended target, but because of, uh, a poor use of a firearm in a heightened emotional situation there was a casualty which is horrible and first and foremost we grieve for the family that had that lost but how then does a, a governing official namely governor grisham have any way to state that that is an emergency to declare that as an emergency by which she can exercise powers over uh, over existing jurisdictions. The problem with this is that if you're going to say it's an emergency, then it's a present danger. And the present danger, that there are measures that need to be taken to neutralize a present danger. And any emergency, and you know, the whole idea of emergency powers in light of the health issues surrounding COVID the notion was emergency powers because this is something that needs to be dealt with now but those emergency powers will be nullified when the threat has been has been dealt with but the threat had already been neutralized by the time this governor uh, declared emergency powers to supposedly ban firearms in albuquerque so it, it really doesn't follow any logical trend for what standard she was exercising these powers that she does not possess moreover by what standard does she think that it would be effective and that's why i think what what you dan and, and connor are both saying makes sense where it's like kind of like a test run just to see how people respond because clearly it's not going to work i mean that's obvious enough and even in the article there was a some an interviewer who or a a press person who is requesting saying okay well if you take away the guns is that gonna make the criminals give up their guns and she says of course not well yes we all know that how obvious is that but we can't let that just slide by the wayside what you're doing is you're disarming citizens from being able to protect themselves against the criminals who will not abide by the laws if they were abiding by the laws they would not be criminals these are the most obvious things that we could ever say and yet they deem being repeated because time and time again and we'll talk more about this throughout the episode the repetitious nonsense that inundates our culture is taking a foothold in our minds and we see that in the public forum for the lukewarm individuals who would read an article saying oh no wow someone got killed we better do something about it Okay, so what will we do about it? Will we disarm people who could be protecting citizens? Will we 
that's the the constant conversation anyway but i i just want to point out how illogical this is that there is no present danger that is ongoing and specific so there is no specific solution to a problem because the problem has been neutralized in this particular instance so there's really no standard by which she could declare any emergency powers and obviously it is unconstitutional and she will she will have consequences of that and i think it's it's clear that you know gavin newsom any big influential liberal city was not going to do this albuquerque could get away with doing it and having a governor have a negative backlash but not so negative as to remove her from office or remove her from potential re-election for goodness sake whereas if Gavin Newsom were to do something like this in California, I think he would have a greater lashback because he has a greater national knowledge and, and uh, a bigger camera looking at him at all the time. Yeah, you may be right about that, or you might not. I don't know. One of the things that I did want to bring up here is um, this is also from the Daily Wire. It was kind of a follow-up article, so I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, New Mexico Governor Michelle Grisham faced intense backlash, including from leftists, which we've kind of talked about already, for banning law-abiding people from being able to carry guns in Albuquerque and the surrounding county for at least the next 30 days. Grisham signed an executive order on Thursday declaring that gun violence was a public health emergency. There it is, folks, in the Democrat-controlled state. On Friday, Grisham unilaterally suspended open and concealed carry laws in Albuquerque and surrounding areas. We've talked about that already just want to read some of the uh, criticism. So this is from David Hogg, which um, Dan, you referenced a moment ago. He said, I support gun safety, but there's no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. It'd be really interesting to hear what David said about COVID because I'm sure he's uh, blinking on that in this moment. But <laughs> either way, I appreciate what he's saying about this instance. And then uh, Representative Ted Lieu from California, Democrat, also pushed back on the executive order. He said, quote, I support gun safety laws. However, this order from the governor of New Mexico violates the U.S. Constitution. No state in the union can suspend the federal constitution. There is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. In New Mexico, Republican state representatives Stephanie Lord and John Block said on Saturday they are pushing for Grisham to be impeached. So that was just some of the backlash that I wanted to quickly highlight, um, partially because of what you said, Michael, regarding their uh, chance of re-election. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this impeachment is going to go anywhere. I think that there's... Um, it, I mean, California already showed us that impeaching a governor is not exactly an easy task to... Uh, uh, to go through uh, like any form of like a recall or anything like that. I don't know what the exact uh, uh, state laws in New Mexico are around um, ousting a governor that the public no longer uh, has the confidence of. But um, Zach of all in the chat actually said moderate Democrats historically have killed most attempts at gun control legislation. We're more united on this than we realize. And that was kind of to my point earlier and to the point of kind of these left-wing individuals giving criticism, I think ultimately it's just a losing issue. When you see across the board, we've actually gotten um, much more gun freedom in America over the last couple of decades than we have a restriction, which is awesome to see. It's just one of the few fronts that we're really seeing freedom um, 
win. Um, but of course, I'm super skeptical like you, Dan. Like, I, I don't think you're wrong about what you were initially saying to the article. It's just a matter of, I think, in this particular instance, this is one of the issues that I don't think that they're going to win on anytime soon, at least, which I think is why you see people like David Hogg and Ted Lieu coming out and basically criticizing this governor for doing something that I think secretly they would kind of support, or at least that's what, uh, that's certainly the public face that they have, um, that's the persona that they've been giving off um, when it comes to gun control. So I think it's interesting to see their critiquing here, but I don't know, Dan, I mean, do you, do you think that there's other motivations for why they might be throwing out these critiques? Well, I think that just generally speaking, leftists and Democrats probably view the gun issue the way that Republican moderates view the abortion issue. Right. And they basically, you know, if you go too hard on this issue, we're going to lose elections. And so I think those issues are viewed, you know, similarly from opposite sides. And that's what they're they're kind of signaling. But what's interesting is we're if you look at this, you know, the Albuquerque thing from like a bird's eye view, you and and it can compare it against other cities in the country, uh, such as New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, even L.A. In, in, in some cases, um, Chicago, for sure. You're watching someone make a power grab all at once rather than chipping away the, the way that they have in these other cities. So the the law, the, the executive order that's being imposed in Albuquerque, you know, uh, is not all that dissimilar from the laws that are on the books in these other cities that have disarmed the law abiding public. We're just watching it happen all at once and realizing, you know, it's probably not going to stand. But, you know, th th the same result, it, it comes from both, essentially. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to legally carry a firearm in many U.S. cities at this point that have been under Democrat control for years. And so, the, the, you know, the main reason that they're pushing back from the left is they're saying, like we said, you know, don't show, you know, all the cards in the hand at once. We'll get there little by little. And uh, I'm sure they would love to see Chicago style, you know, gun restrictions uh, on the entire country, but they just don't want us to be, you know, they don't want to wake the sleeping bear, so to speak. Right. And that's where the white pill came in for me is I think that this was one of those moments where, again, I think they just pushed too far, but obviously the, the, the flip side of that is the black pill where this means that they'll probably try it again. You know, they let the mask slip sort of, uh, your point about gun control, um, being kind of the left's version of abortion is, I think a, a perfect analogy because obviously we know that individuals are not monolithic. I'm just saying that for the people in the chat that are going to, you know, get on us for talking in generalities here. Um, but for the sake of conversation, I'm going to use some generalities to say that left-wing individuals um, tend to be on the pro-gun control side and especially those who are actually in higher offices um, on the left side of the aisle. And, I think you're absolutely right. I think ultimately they would like to see um, abolition of of the right to bear arms, um, but they can't they can't do that overnight. And and to to your point, like when it comes to abortion, I'm an abolitionist. I absolutely want to see abortion eradicated from the entire country. Um, but at the same time, I'm also a realist, and I'm going to take incremental wins when I can, um, because unfortunately there has been a lot of polling to suggest that a lot of the public is not um, on my side of the issue. Um, now they're, they're also definitely not on the side of the issue of abortion up until birth. <laughs> and so in a way I, 
I don't celebrate that a Democrat comes out and advocates for abortion on demand up until birth, because obviously that's horrible. But I do celebrate the fact that uh, it's a political mistake. I celebrate the fact that we have a chance to capitalize on that to ultimately bring about the abolition of abortion. Because a uh, prime example, um, after the Republican debates, I, I believe um, it might have been Ron DeSantis' answer, but um, whoever gave the answer, it, ultimately the, they were talking specifically about uh, uh, the abortion issue. And yeah, it was Ron DeSantis, I believe, that talked about how the Democrats are are pro-aborting up until birth. And you got a bunch of fact checkers saying no one's advocating for that. And it, very clearly the Democratic Party has advocated on that several times. I mean, I believe Even it was Colorado after that birth. said after, yeah, I believe it was Colorado <laughs> that said after birth, they put that into legislation. So it's like, yeah, there's a lot of normies or apolitical people that are not paying attention that do think that the Democrats are just the Democrats of the eighties and nineties of safe, legal, rare, but they're not, they're, they're absolutely not. And it's very high up people in the party that have in the past, very recently advocated for abortion all the way through nine months. And because of that, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, were disgusted by that. And ultimately, that's one of, I would say, three essential reasons why Virginia flipped red in 2021 and Glenn Youngkin became governor. I don't know if Glenn Youngkin has done any abortion legislation um, that's been any pro-life wins in Virginia. I haven't paid that close attention to it. But either way, we got an individual who brought about significantly more freedom in the state of Virginia because Terry McAuliffe was the one that was talking about having a conversation with the baby basically on the tray. Well, we'll make the baby comfortable and have a conversation with the, with the mom. Like that talk was horrifying to so many individuals. And I really think that that made people who were maybe okay with a first trimester abortion, as much as I hate that these individuals, you know, for whatever reason, the marketing around abortion has convinced them that that's okay but they know it's definitely not okay when it looks un, you know, undeniably like a, a, a child. And when it's a full functioning baby able to function outside of the womb, if it was delivered, you know, early through a cesarean section, you know, but, but for some reason, you know, that that's one of those moments where um, they started to lose the plot and their messaging became skewed when they, when they, uh, went too far too fast and that's what i hope this instance will turn into i know i said a lot Hidden there angels <laughs> in the chat says what really makes me uncomfortable is that these officials keep violating the constitution and nothing happens to them unless someone files a lawsuit why can't they just leave the constitution alone well, the governor was asked in a press conference right immediately following her executive order about that. And she said that her duty to up uphold the Constitution was, quote unquote, not absolute. So, you know, we're, we're basically living in post-constitutional times in many ways. And uh, a lot of these Democrats just view it as kind of a, just a piece of paper, of course, and they don't really have to listen to it. The good thing is, of course, and, and as many people have, have been saying for a long time, is that um, as things go more haywire at the federal and the you know the upper levels of, of state governments um we need to be rallying around good sheriffs and good local officials mm -hmm. that will basically say as a sheriff in albuquerque 
uh, I forget the name of the county, um, said basically, you know, I'm not going to enforce it. It's, this. It's totally unconstitutional and it opens law abiding citizens to just being victims of, of criminals. And so that's good and that's important. And, that, and that's how it should have worked during COVID. Unfortunately, I think we saw a lot of uh, law enforcement uh, officers and su supervisors and, uh, you know, the, the unions, all of them dropped the ball on the COVID thing, the way that people were treated across the country, even in conservative strongholds in the face of these public health emergencies was atrocious. Uh, and so that's, you know, another reason why if you don't have a good sheriff in your area, you don't have a good uh, head of law enforcement telling, uh, you know, the officers and the troopers uh, at the ground level, you know, how to handle all this stuff when an, a totally unconstitutional order comes from above, then uh, we find out, you know, how those how important those people are for, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. Thomas Massey put out a tweet. He said, ultimately, government is whatever the people in power can get away with and whatever the people they govern will tolerate. This holds true for all governments, whether they be republics, democracies, dictatorships, monarchies, socialists, or communists. Noncompliance is key. I agree with that because ultimately we do see where the Constitution is not followed. And a lot of that's because there's no political will to enforce what the Constitution is supposed to regulate. And, you know, Michael Knowles actually was talking about this um, on Twitter and he got a lot of trouble for it. He was talking a lot about how there is a time and place to um, to suspend some of the legal rights in the, the case of emergency. And so many people were kind of at his throat because that's a very uh, illiberal idea. And that was kind of his point is it, it's an illiberal idea. It's not necessarily a conservative one. And he brought up some um, quotes from Jefferson and a lot of these individuals who talk about how, you know, in, in extreme circumstances, essentially um, if it truly means to save the a people, a people group, you know, you can suspend, uh, constitutional norms essentially is how it was said. Um, I'm obviously paraphrasing here. Um, and to some degree, there is truth to that. And, and it, it's hard because obviously it's a slippery slope. You have to be really careful about defining your terms, but, um, but I mean, the prime example is we, we see individuals have done this in history where we didn't shame them for it. Um, you know, Lincoln had to do a lot of stuff in order to keep the union together during the civil war. Uh, we see a lot of the, um, we, we see a lot of individuals who have had to actually essentially take on more constitutional power in order to protect the rights of other individuals. Like, for example, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is just the idea that if the if the civil magistrate who is in the highest office neglects their duty, then a lesser magistrate has the ability to essentially um, take up the, the mantle of responsibility and defend this the those that they are um, responsible for even against the, the higher magistrate. So a, a prime example of this in modern times would be how Ron DeSantis handled COVID in Florida. You know, the, the higher magistrate was essentially abusing the people of Florida and he said, that's enough. And he stepped up and he really was one of the largest reasons why lockdowns I think ended when they did. I think we would have potentially had them drug out much longer had Florida not been such a, a, a thorn in the narrative. Um, and obviously there are other States that did great things too, like uh, South Dakota and things like that. But ultimately Florida was one of the largest swing States that, that did that. And one of the more populous States um, also state with a lot of elderly. So it really changed the narrative a lot. Um, 
But anyways, my, my point is just, I, I agree with that assessment, but obviously we just have to be very careful about defining uh, what that looks like. And for me, like as a Christian, I can point to something outside of the constitution. I can, I can say that at the end of the day, I follow scripture above the constitution. And so at the end of the day, if the constitution was uh, going to go up against scripture, I'm, I'm ultimately going to follow scripture, not the constitution. Uh, now, luckily, the Constitution was written with Scripture in mind, and it very, uh, it very much does a good job of living into the biblical worldview when it's uh, in its proper sphere. But um, we see that the government uh, is oftentimes not in its proper sphere, and uh, it's kind of up to the family and it's up to the church to advise the government and to at some time rebuke the government until they are back into their proper sphere and that's a lot of what the you know conversations like these are are good for but i know i said a lot there gentlemen so jump in wherever all right we're moving on then i was gonna let michael go but i would just supplement that by saying um you know that is such a good point and and we're living in a time now i think the proper you know, the proper descriptor for for the time that we're in in this country is anarcho-tyranny. And I don't think that that right. phrase gets enough exposure, but it, it perfectly exemplifies, you know, what we're dealing with right now. And this New Mexico situation is a great example. You say, we're going to crack down on the law abiding because who are the only people that would possibly consider, you know, obeying this executive order would be the law abiding, those who subscribe to the orders of the government. And, uh, and who is she admitting that will not subscribe to this and will certainly not be affected and will of course carry on with business as usual is the 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 animals in the streets the feral animals that are roaming our streets and being allowed to wreak havoc and attack uh you know the law-abiding people out there innocent people in the cities across this country and uh, essentially what we have on, at the ground level is anarchy and so um and and that's being allowed to flourish and um so that that does create this issue where you have the most powerful person in the state saying that i'm going to attack the law abiding and that's where you have someone like the sheriff saying i will not enforce this order as it's unconstitutional so that's a great uh you know example of what you were just talking about with the lower and upper magistrate yeah absolutely all right well let's jump into our next story so this is from timcast.com Get rid of this bubble here. Enrique Tarrio sentenced to 22 years in prison. The former leader of the Proud Boys was convicted of seditious conspiracy in May in connection to the Capitol riot in 2021. The former leader of the Proud Boys has been sentenced to 22 years in prison and 36 months of supervised release, the longest sentence given to any person in connection to January 6. Enrique Tarrio appealed in federal court in Washington, D.C. after or on September 5th, after nearly a week-long delay. Tario was convicted of seditious conspiracy in May after the federal government accused him and four other Proud Boys of plotting to disrupt election proceedings on January 6, 2021 at the nation's capital. Tario was not in Washington, D.C. on the day of the riot. Quote, I have been selfish, said Tario while addressing the court. I have made strides to be a better man during my incarceration, end quote. Tario 39 asked U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly not to take his 40s from him and expressed his desire to get married and start a family. I am not a political zealot, Tario said. I didn't even think it was possible to change the results of an election. 
Judge Kelly found that the terrorism enhancement sought by the Department of Justice should be applied as there is a preponderance of evidence that Tario was a leader or organizer of the activity that involved five or more people. What happened that day damaged an important American custom that helps support the rule of law and the Constitution. That day broke our previous unbroken tradition of peacefully transferring power, Kelly said, before handing down his verdict. It's kind of hard to put into words how important that peaceful transfer of power is. Tario's lawyers argued against the enhancement, saying that while he was the leader of the Proud Boys, he was definitely not the leader of the events of January 6th. It was not his intention to bring down the United States government or overthrow the United States government, Tario's lawyers say, per Vice News journalist Greg Walters. Tario's representation asked the judge for no more than 15 years in prison. Tario is the group's last member accused of conspiracy to receive his sentence after Kelly fell ill. The Florida resident's original August 30th sentencing was delayed. Joe Biggs, 39, was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Zachary Rail. 38 was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Ethan Nordian, 32, was sentenced to 18 years in, on August 1st. All three men also received a terrorist terrorism enhancement. So we'll go ahead and, and end it there for now. But this was unfortunate to see because obviously whatever you want to say about January 6th, there's a lot of things that you can say were really bad. Obviously um, there were individuals who did get into scuffles with, with uh, police officers. Um, that's not okay. There were some individuals that probably did deserve to go to jail. Um, but obviously this is an example of a really heavy hand with the sentencing. I mean, we're talking about individuals who in this scenario, Tario was not in DC during the time of uh, what he's being convicted, uh, which is, orchestrating the riot in DC where he was not there in person. So they said that he just basically did this all through texts and I don't have all the exact details in front of me on every single text that was sent, but uh, many other individuals have hashed that out. So you're welcome to, uh, to post it in the chats if you guys find it. But either way, uh, this to me was a frightening precedent just because this individual was clearly not there. And it's one thing if they wanted to give him a slap on the wrist, if they thought his, you know, his text really did incite, but it's a whole other thing that he's now looking at, uh, at multiple decades behind bars on terrorism charges. So I thought that was ridiculous, but Dan, what was your initial reaction to the story? Horrifying to see the sentences handed down. Uh, Joe was one of my first friends at Infowars. Uh, as you probably know, they're coming off after many of my colleagues at InfoWars, including Owen Schroyer. They've come after Alex as well. And so, you know, I just feel so much, you know, deep sympathy for these guys, everything that they're going through. Joe is a decorated, uh, you know, severely injured uh, combat veteran. He gave a lot of, of his life for the country already. And uh, my understanding of everything about this case was that essentially it was just kind of a part of this giant mob, which was, of course, infested with federal agents that were uh, posing uh, as as MAGA, posing as Proud Boys, posing as Oath Keepers. So, you know, trying to un, uh, un you know, untangle that ball of of yarn is is nearly impossible because, you know, of course, the, the government, there's no accountability whatsoever. They're hiding all the the hours and hours of footage. Um, but, you know, the, the facts of the case essentially were that Biggs, uh, you know, shook a fence. Uh, went into the Capitol, went to the bathroom, was asked to leave, left the Capitol, went back in with a friend to look for the friend's son and then left. You know, I mean, maybe if you want to, you know, slap the slap the guy with a fine for trespassing, I don't know, like that's up for debate. But 
um, to to come after a, a combat veteran in this way is just disgusting, in my opinion. And uh, uh, Joe was called into uh, into Gavin McInnes' show the other day, and uh, he sounded in reasonable spirits. But you know, he's got a very young child, as do most of these guys who were sentenced to long, uh, long, you know, decade, two decades. Uh, of time in prison, most of them have uh, have young young children. Uh, one of them apparently has never even you know met his child, other than uh, at some of these court proceedings and all that, which is heart heartbreaking. And um, and so, but uh, but he sounded in a reasonable spirits. But he did say that they were shocked by the the length of the sentences. They all went in optimistic for for instance four to five years possibly. They were thinking in a, in a good scenario. Um, and when they were hit with 17, 18, 22 years, you know, they were they were really stunned by that. And I can't imagine how that would make you feel. Um, but he did also say that many of the prison guards, many of the po police officers they've been encountering, and even some of the inmates who he said are hardened criminals have been coming up to them and saying, you know, this is totally unjust. We can't believe you've even been in here for a day. Joe spent the better part of, part of two years in solitary confinement, which is, a, you know, an unbelievable test of your fortitude. And he came out the other side, you know, a, a soberer and, and brighter and stronger man. And I do hope that he's able to pull through. And, you know, I'm not really optimistic at all about any uh, future presidential elections, but I will say that uh, if a Republican president, especially if his name is Donald Trump, becomes president, that uh, on his first day of office, he needs to be offering a swath of pardons. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's so hard to wrap our heads around, at least for me, you know, the, the extreme response, like you said, Dan, to think a couple years in my world, a couple years is drastic. To think that if you have a small child to be away from that small child during some extremely formative times is one thing but then to be out when you're 39 and get back when you're 56 in joe's situation and even more extreme situations for others um, that's a lot of life a lot of life to be spent uh, Paying for crimes that, I don't know, There's perhaps there's not enough information being put out about it. At, towards the end of this article, I think it's interesting, it says 1,100 people have been federally charged in connections to the events, and over 600 people have been sentenced, 350 of which have been charged with assault or impending law enforcement. So, what I wonder is those 600 people who have been sentenced and presumably the 1100 who have been uh, charged have undergone extensive background checks uh, informational collections to see who they were talking to what led up to the january 6th and the sentencing leads me to think i i hope and i pray in good faith that our judicial system is not so corrupted that they are completely innocent but the degree to which their faults are are in lying you know this this article surrounds tario specifically and his leadership over proud boys how many of those 600 people who have been sentenced are confirmed proud boys conspirators who had been directed by tario specifically you know the, there's information that isn't being told about some of the details that 
you know, maybe we shouldn't expect that from a surface level news outlet like this, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard because at the end of the day, they have to prove what all these individuals did. That was so heinous to be considered terrorism. Mm -hmm. And it, it really does, does feel like they're really wanting to broaden that definition just because they have a political beef. Well, what Which I was is, saying was like five or more people, five or more conspirators that were uh, organized justifies the terrorism enhancement charges. Right. And if you know anything about the Proud Boys, from my understanding, they're very uh, unorganized um, is what I've, I've heard. I, I really know next to nothing about the Proud Boys beyond obviously what I've what I've heard just through uh, news outlets. But uh, which I take with a pound of salt each time, but <laughs> either way. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing is unfortunate because yeah, I mean, it, we don't see, we, we just see it. It feels like at least um, from our perspective, it does feel like there's an eagerness to throw the book of these individuals in the hardest way possible. And on the flip side, I wanted to bring up this, this other story uh, that kind of is a, a part B to this segment. So this is also from the Daily Wire. North Dakota man gets five years for running over and killing teen with his car over concerns he was a Republican extremist. Authorities sentenced a North Dakota man to five years in state prison on Friday after he fatally hit an 18-year-old with his car following his expression of concern about the teenager's alleged connection to Republican extremist group. Shannon Brandt of Glenfield, North Dakota, pled guilty to manslaughter in May after fatally running over Kaylor Ellingson with his 2003 Ford Explorer on September 8, 18, 2022, in McHenry, North Dakota. A state district court judge reportedly gave Brandt the sentencing with yearly, nearly, excuse me, a year of credit for time served under house arrest, including three years supervised probation, and a year-long suspension of his driver's license. The maximum penalty for such charges is 10 years in prison, a $20,000 fine, or both, according to the Associated Press. Ellingson's mother, Sherry, reportedly requested the judge hand down the maximum sentence for Brandt. Shannon, you took a piece of our family that's not replaceable, she said, according to Fox News. When you chose to take Kaler's life and happiness, you took ours too. You have caused our family endless pain, heartache, sleepless nights. Our days, months, and years will never be the same because of your selfishness, Ellingson added. The case quickly became controversial after an affidavit from police suggested that Brandt had run down Ellingson following a political disagreement, a claim investigators backtracked later after little evidence supported the assertion. Foster County uh, State Attorney Kara Brinster said Brandt had been drinking and arguing with Ellingson before the incident. Brandt claimed in a 9-11 call that he had felt threatened by Ellingson over the teen's alleged connection to a Republican extremist group and was urging others to attack Brandt after a political argument, according to the call. He was threatening me with something to have to do with something with an extremist Republican group. And then he made a phone call. He made a phone call saying, I thought he was a Republican background noise or something. You're going to have to come here and handle him. I got scared to death. I didn't know what to do. A transcript of Brant's 9-11 calls say. Brant said that he accidentally hit the teen while trying to get away from him during a crowded event in McHenry. An auto, an autopsy, excuse me, report said that Ellingson's fatal injuries weren't caused from being struck by Brant, Shannon Brant's vehicle and were caused by being run over once he was on the ground. So there's more here. 
to get into, but this was a story. I remember when this first happened, a lot of individuals were immediately jumping on the fact that this seemed like a politically motivated murder. Now, obviously there's, um, there's a, a transcribed phone call where he specifically mentioned that he thought this kid was a Republican extremist. So to some degree, there is politics involved in this instance, but either way, at the end of the day, whether you want to believe it's politically motivated or not, this is an individual that ran over an 18 year old, what seemed to be intentional from what I've, I, everything I've read. Um, now feel free to correct me, either of you, if you, uh, feel differently or see differently, but, uh, either way, this individual has been given five years as opposed to other individuals that are given nearly two decades worth of sentencing for, um, being somehow involved in January six, many of which in slight capacities, such as Tario, who is not even at the Capitol. So obviously this is to your point, Dan, uh, this really, this really makes me think of anarcho tyranny uh, it really does seem like there is a uh justice is not blind lady justice is not blind uh there is a a tiered political system and unfortunately this is uh probably not the last we're going to see of it my hope is that by bringing attention to this that we could honestly turn down the heat i really do think that that's ultimately what we want to see happen when we have these conversations um but either way i'll, I'll turn it over to you for your initial reaction well, it's a shame that this is such a tragic story because I would love to have a laugh at the phrase Republican extremist because I have to wonder <laughs> what is a Republican extremist? Um, do we have even, you know, uh, on the right, let's say, uh, wh where would an extremist fall on that? You know, would it be uh, anti-abortion, anti-lockdown at this point? Lindsey Graham. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, but, you know, I think... What we see here, obviously, is a, is a per, the, the analogy, the comparison between the two. Perfect example, another one of anarcho tyranny, and uh, you know, someone being killed. What seems like for their political beliefs is uh, textbook terrorism. When you kill someone else uh, to make a political point, um, so uh, obviously, this is actual uh, case of terrorism. If that's indeed what happened, and I have to believe that someone who uh, reportedly was inebriated when they run somebody down. Uh, when they spew that owl out, that's the first thing out of their mouth to law enforcement over the phone, or the, I guess it was a 911 call, um, then uh, that's probably what was on their heart in that moment or in their minds when they were involved in that sort of uh, what appears to be in a deliberate attack. So I think we should just take his words at face value. And uh, frankly, if you believe in, uh, in capital punishment, then I think that he should probably face it. And if you don't believe in capital punishment, he should probably be sent to a labor camp in uh, northern Alaska and never heard from again. <laughs> Specifically Alaska. <laughs> or, yeah. or the deserts of Nevada, somewhere really rough. Hmm. Hmm. Like you were saying, Dan, at the beginning, just the, the notion of Republican extremism. This is what I was alluding to earlier in the conversation where I said that uh, repetitious idiosyncrasies are being propagated by media and have been numerous times so that we associate what would be Republican extremism is like the, the mental association we have is white supremacy, Nazi, because how often is the term Nazi thrown around. And sure, some people would probably hear this story and think, well, if a Nazi was trying to hurt him, then he was in self-defense and he had to get out of there and hit him with a car, whatever. 
from what it said in the article, it sounded like he genuinely wasn't trying to kill the guy, but he certainly had no disregard, no regard for his well-being, for the the 18-year-old's well-being, and like the the autopsy showed that the fatality was not due to the injuries from the impact, but from having run over the kid. And in the spur of a moment, you know, there's so much that we don't know. Whether he just gassed it in a panic and then ran over the kid, or whether it was deliberate, you know, we don't know that. But the fact of the matter is, this person's dead. And it was clearly an agitation that was motivated through a difference of perspective that he felt threatened. The, the, the guy driving the car felt threatened. And the, the 911 transcript is interesting because it's like, something about Republican. Okay, well that's, that's not much to go off of as far as what sort of threat you're in. Is the guy pulling a gun? Is there deadly force being drawn against you? Why could he not have waited for the police to arrive? Why did he feel the need to act out in this way? But it's disturbing that the term Republican extremist can be even validated by being used in this way. I mean, it's it shows how far those the repetition of associating Nazis with far right and that sort of thing that the, the media has been propagating for years now, it shows how far that has taken a foothold in the minds of the public. And that's as disturbing as anything in this to me, because that is the, the mode by which he's justified in his actions seemingly by whoever would possibly agree with him. But yeah, Dan, I, I... Certainly five years for murdering someone else doesn't seem like a rightful charge. With no terrorism um, upgrade yeah. on the charges, of course. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, and, and but going back to the Republican extremism thing and, and also just this act of violence against, you know, a conservative uh, young man, um, we've been seeing that for years. And, and, you know, as much as we'd like to think that someone like this is kind of a deranged one off, I don't think that's the case. And, and I think that a lot of the a lot of the uh, liberals in this country formerly, you know, went by liberals. I think calling them liberals is just totally, uh, totally inaccurate. These people are insane Lefties. feral communists and there are yeah. hundreds of thousands of them in this country. Um, and I think that they view anyone you know, who watches Fox News as a Republican extremist. I would, you know, deem anyone who's a, a Fox News stan as probably being pretty milquetoast and not extreme enough for me. Um, but, uh, but you know, and if they are equating them, let's say, to the Proud Boys. Uh, I know plenty of Proud Boys been around them. They're just a bunch of uh, conservative dudes who like to drink and fight. You know, someone might find that extreme, but politically, they're not all that extreme. You know, that there's there's homosexuals in the Proud Boys. There's, you know, all races, all, all religions. Um, so they're not that extreme either. Um, of course, Nazis and Republicans have very little in common. So by drawing that, you know, corollary is just ridiculous. Um, so so I think um, th the fact of the matter is that there are far more people in this country who would love to 
get off without more than really a slap on the wrist if they could take out uh, a Republican extremist, maybe their neighbor who watches Fox News, if it really meant, um, you know, not really facing that much in repercussions, I think a lot of them would because they do view uh, many of us as Nazis and as, you know, basically like dangerous threats to them. Uh, when, of course, all we've seen 99.9% of the time, uh, if you just go back to the, the Trump campaign, um, how much violence there was outside uh, of um, uh, practically every rally, some rallies even having to be shut down because so many Democrats were out in the streets attacking Trump supporters, uh, families, uh, single women, uh, lone elderly people, sometimes even inside the events. And you just never see that. You've never seen that at a Biden rally. You've never seen that even at an Antifa gathering, you know, where it would be totally justified uh, if, if everyone at, at one of these gatherings, such as the uh, the Chaz in Seattle, was uh, was just rounded up and never heard from again as well. I mean, these are, these are the, the scum of the earth. Nobody goes there. Nobody attacks them. Nobody's, uh, you know, committing violence against them. Nobody's even calling for it because our side never does that. Their side does it all the time. So, I mean, this is not just an isolated one-off. We saw the guy who brought a gun to, uh, you know, to a Republican or a congressional baseball game and started shooting up Republicans. We've seen members of Congress being attacked uh, physically at their homes, like Rand Paul. Uh, you know, Trump has had threats on his life day in and day out, you know, every day since he announced his candidacy. So this is kind of the MO of leftists. They're the ones who who uh, are, have been terrorists for decades in this country, the weather underground, um, uh, you know, all the way through today with Antifa. Um, and, and our side just doesn't really ever do anything like that. And the one time maybe that they fight back, like the Proud Boys, they end up in jail for years. Hmm. So how do you think that we turn down the heat? Because that's that's the question that I always am contemplating, you know, every day of my life. <laughs> How do we turn down the heat in this uh, in this political climate? Because obviously, like, there's a point where uh, there's individuals that are just wanting justice to be equal, and it feels like we can't get that. But then at the same time, there are um, you know individuals on the opposite side of the aisle that would you know that would just say right back at you to all the things that you just said, Dan. So obviously, there's a certain point where we have to have something outside of ourselves. Um, to look to, to, um, to administer justice. But, um, but obviously, uh, we have to talk about what we do on an individual level, as well as a societal level. So I mean, what's your thoughts on turning down the heat? The only way, in my opinion, as much as I would love to see it, because I would much rather live in a peaceful, uh, cohesive nation that we might have had 50 years ago, where it was a lot easier for people to get along. Political differences were put aside for the most part, and uh, people could have, you know, functioning communities. That time has passed, unfortunately, and I, and I don't think that that's really any fault of our own, especially being the generation that we're in. I think that the generations prior to us should have handled this and not let it ever get to this point. But this country needs to find God uh, and individuals need to find God, and it will take an act of God, if anything, to bring unity back to the country. Yeah. I don't see that happening, but only God can know whether or not it will and how he will uh, you know, de deal with it in that moment. Um, but frankly, I don't see it happening. And um, in terms of turning down the heat, look to our elected officials. Are they turning down the heat? No, they are arresting thousands 
of law-abiding citizens and, uh, you know, conducting the largest manhunt uh, in, in American history, probably in world history, looking for every single person that was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, you know, to put them in prison, putting grandmas in prison and, you know, going after, you know, uh, d decent people who, who just uh, want a fair election, let's say. Um, and so uh, I don't see the heat being turned down unless it's an act of God. Um, and so I think we just need to prepare to stand our ground. Michael, anything to add? Well, it harkens back to what we've said time and time again, is that our faith is not in legislation. Our faith is not in people, nor the authorities that be in our governance, but the authority that is absolute, and that is in God. So just as we trust that it won't happen without an act of God, we also trust that our Lord will act on behalf of the righteous and that doesn't mean that the Proud Boys are the repentant, good Christians either. I'm just saying our hope is not in this world. And, and tonight's topics are fairly dismal in that regard and seeing justice not be served well. But just a reminder that our hope is not in these things. And we trust a justice that is far greater. And that yeah. is the source of our salvation. Amen. Uh, AM, AMC Rebel S Rebels uh, ST. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know exactly how you how you want us to uh, read out your username, but uh, you said Dan. Dan said it. It will take an act of God. I'm not religious, and then you said I'm open. I'm assuming you meant open to religion potentially. I'm not quite sure. I might be misreading that depending upon when the chat came in. But uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately. At what Michael said, our hope is not found in legislation or uh, individual politicians. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be unaware. That if anything, that's that's the message that we constantly preach in this podcast. Because I think too many people um, have uh, in the faith have um, neglected their responsibility in this, this civic sphere because they sort of leaned too heavily into that message and kind of thought that they should just like not touch civics and politics altogether, which is, is, is kind of the, the error on the, on the other side. That's the ditch on the other side of the road. But um, reading Psalm two can be very comforting, you know, in times like, uh, like this, when you feel like the, like the institutions are against you. And, and so honestly, I really do think that, uh, that faith in Jesus Christ is very comforting to know that uh, ultimately there is a higher authority who is currently reigning uh, on the throne and nothing will dethrone him. And he sits in heaven and he laughs uh, because why do the nations rage? You know, there, there's nothing that they can do to defeat his kingdom. And that's a lot of why we can still have hope. Um, you mentioned earlier that you came here for a laugh. Well, we have to be happy warriors. Um, we started this episode talking about wiener dog races for a reason, <laughs> you know, because we have to enjoy the, the small things in life that, uh, that God has blessed us with because we do live in, in some dark times. Um, but, uh, of course, where there's darkness, there's also light. And, um, you know, I, I really do think that there's some, some good in this world, um, that is, that is declaring righteousness to the nations. And that's a lot of what we are hoping to do with this podcast is to shed a little light into the darkness to not hide from these conversations, but also to uh, have them in a way that can hopefully be encouraging to you in some capacity. So hopefully that was, but we'll go ahead and jump into our next story here. So this is from post millennial 
Tech News Magazine Wired published a story and made it an editor's pick on Thursday that claimed it was immoral to want children who share one's genetic makeup and claimed that reducing bio, biologism, wow, bio, bio, Michael, how would you say that? <laughs> Goodness, where are we looking here? Bio, biologism. I mean, I know it's Biologism. based off of biology, but uh, bio- biologism is how we'll say it. I'm sure that uh, someone's not going to be happy that I've maligned their profession. <laughs> it could be a way to push back against the biological essentialism built into white supremacy. In the intro, the author rejects the notion that having a biological child creates a hardwired relationship and bond between the parent and child, and that this prioritization of biological inheritance biologism, as some call it, has recently become unsettled. Writer Leo Kim said that due to the advancement in modern practices in gestational surgery, or what some consider renting a woman's womb, the and the ability to screen embryos for genetic abnormalities, the preference for biological children, quote, can feel downright ancient, a vestigial remnant of a different epoch, a fossil no longer animated by the same moral institutions that gave it gravity in the past. When looking into the idea of genetic testing, the article notes the horrors of state-sponsored eugenics, but that the ability to genetically screen embryos for disease and determine traits is minimal in scope. He suggests that if biology is to be a factor at all, it should be only considered insofar as it prevents harm and suffering. So clearly the article is going to go on to talk much more in depth and feel free either of you to bring up any point if there's something uh, important there that I missed, but... I just thought that this article in general was just an interesting read because sadly this just seems to be again, part of the trend um, to break down normal nuclear families. And I think it's, it's, it's definitely a slippery slope with some of the fertility industry. I haven't done a a ton of thinking about things like surrogacy and uh, IVF and, and things of that nature. I know that it has blessed, uh, many individuals, but I do know that there's uh, there's a lot of um, playing God with uh, with this area of science, and unfortunately, I, I just feel like at the end of the day, this is just going to be another opportunity for uh, individuals to really promote um, depopulation. Honestly, they're going to say, "Why why have your kid when you can have someone else's um, you know embryo that's already been frozen in in." you know, uh, in a freezer for years. And, uh, there's just going to be a whole lot of push to not worry about having your own children. And that's unfortunate because Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his, uh, they, they are arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. Um, and to me, this is just really sad to see. I just think it's unfortunate that there is a, a genuine push within the mainstream narrative to not only promote childlessness, but even if you do want a child, you have to be okay with it potentially not being yours because apparently it's wrong for you. It's immoral for you and selfish to want to have your own children. And I think that's just ridiculous. It's a load of hot garbage. Um, But Dan, what was your initial reaction to that article? Well, you see something like this and you just your brain starts going, you start remembering all these different, you know, possibly connected stories, possibly connected situations. Of course, the obvious ones are like, 
you know, whole trans thing or surrogacy. We're seeing um, homosexuals just buying babies, just renting wombs like left and right, and they're being praised for it. And it's such a beautiful moment when they show up, even including our <clears throat> uh, transportation administrator, but a judge. Um, but um, it made me think of this, actually. This was just four days ago. Israeli scientists create model of human embryo without eggs or sperm. Scientists mm. in Israel have created a model of a human embryo from stem cells in the laboratory without using sperm, eggs, or a womb, offering a unique glimpse into the early stages of embryonic <clears throat> development. So, you know, there's so many different ways you could, you know, analyze this story, but that's the first thing that came to mind for me. It's just, you know, what if eventually in you know, in the future, they're going to have these just, you know, humanoids being uh, just made in labs. And if you want one, you just buy it. And um, there was some really weird uh, stuff happening on the sidelines of one of the football games this weekend. It was humanoids. Um, I, I didn't catch the whole thing. Stu Peters actually posted a video of it. Um, and it was basically they looked, you know, quite a lot like humans and they were wearing these outfits and uh, i i want to say the 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 theme of it was the creator or something like that and uh, i thought of that when i read the story as well which i should probably go back and find that tweet because um we're living in a time now where science is essentially you know the really you know diabolical scientists are figuring out ways that they can maybe just make humans out of nothing and um at that point if you're 50 years old and you're childless wine ant and you you know desperately you know want a child at that point and it's way too late for you why not just buy one and uh you know how is that any different than having a dog at that point i suppose it's it'll look a little bit more like you than the dog so i mean we're just heading into this really really weird time in the years ahead you know coupled with ai uh coupled with transhumanism um so uh it's not surprising to see an article like this and it just gets your head spinning Wondering, you know, what do they have in store? Well, yeah, we basically live in Total Recall or some other 80s sci-fi film that would have been absolutely ridiculous at the time. And yet here we are talking about uh, eugenics and cloning everything you just discussed. The, the heart of the question in this article is talking about whether or not it's immoral right and the stance of the article would be that it is immoral and that it is biological essentialism which leads to which is an asset of white supremacy which is pretty fascinating and telling of itself because last i checked biological essentialism i thought was just a human trait that we wanted to continue our species uh, but apparently that's reserved for white white supremacist but the morality behind it, so, you know, we look at morality through a biblical lens. Uh, Christian ethics is, I think, the, the way that I will approach this, as always. And there's a few different aspects to this where, in Scripture, just peeling back the layers quite a bit, there's the actions that you take and there are the intentions behind those actions. The actions are, you're responsible for actions, that are sinful or that are evil, but also there's intentions. And when Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, he specifically says, you've heard that it is said, don't murder your brother. But I tell you, even if you say he's an idiot in your heart, you've murdered him in your heart. And you've heard that it says, do not 
commit adultery. But I tell you, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery against her in your heart. So there's something to be said about the intentions behind something and that they have a separate uh, correlation to ethics and, and morality than the action itself. Now, sometimes there's also examples in scripture of actions that take place that were accidental or that were uh, unintentional and they still require recompense. So I'm not saying that that's off the hook, but in this circumstance, concerning the whole biological child thing. Obviously, I think we're in agreement that a heterosexual couple that wants to reproduce biologically should not be should not be criticized for that desire and should not be considered immoral. We're talking a little bit more so about the whole um, surrogacy thing, and that brings up the question of when two men want to have a baby and decide to have their genetics spliced and put into a surrogate mother who's renting out her womb, that presents a whole new moral debate than a heterosexual couple who may require an IVF or something to that degree. So a biological child for whom would be my question. Uh, that, that I think determines the morality behind it or immorality because I think it's extremely selfish for a homosexual couple to determine that they have any right to reproductive demands for their own biology when they have denied their own biology in order to uh, be in a marriage that they would want to have a child. So I know that probably might get me some heat in a few areas but yeah i don't think a homosexual couple should be able to demand that their own genetics be passed on through a surrogate mother when that puts the mother at risk it there's other ethical issues in place there but if it's a a heterosexual couple that's using their own biological abilities to reproduce then clearly that is not white supremacy i think that that should be established well enough. But what do you think of that, Connor, as far as like the whole surrogacy for homosexual couples? How does that change the conversation at all? Well, I think ultimately, you know, biblically speaking, homosexuality is obviously a sin. You know, um, if you're a homosexual individual and you're watching this, um, you know, it's it's. I say it with as much love as I can without also being dishonest to you. And I think you would ultimately want me to be honest with you. Um, the Bible is pretty clear that it's a sin. Um, as far as surrogacy in general, I mean, that that's a, a, a hard question to, to ask, you know, because there are, there are individuals where, um, you know, um, uh, they want to have a baby, uh, you know, a married couple wants to have a baby and they want to have someone else, uh, essentially host the baby in their womb because maybe one of them has a medical complication. Um, but in the course of a homosexual couple, obviously that's, uh, that's not the case. I mean, there is a medical complication, but it's because, uh, there's no womb. In it's existence. a biological complication. Yeah, yeah. That's a better way of putting it. Biological bi biologism or they could whatever both be we're very now. fertile and it would not make a difference. <laughs> right. Right. And so, I mean, to me, I think that that's ultimately I, I'd have to say that that's probably, uh, I mean, it is a sin. 
ultimately because homosexual love is a sin, I believe. Um, now, if a homosexual male wanted to reproduce with a woman, I believe that that should be done um, in marriage. So, you know, hopefully you can maybe repress your urge. I don't think that anyone is born homosexual. I think you act homosexual. I know that's also controversial. doesn't mean that there might not be some uh, um, um, circumstances that maybe you were born into that might uh, make you more apt for that, uh, that sin. But ultimately, I, I do think that's a, it's an action. Um, anyways, I, I say that they're not born homosexual. Sorry, I'm just interrupting to say, what is it, uh, Psalm 51, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin, like, yeah, maybe you were born homosexual, that doesn't make it okay. Yeah, well, regardless of whether you fall on the debate, it still doesn't change the fact that you were called not to be. Yeah, exactly, that's the point I'm making, is that this conversation goes beyond whether or not you're born gay. The fact of the matter is homosexuality is defined in outside of the bounds of righteousness that we are called to. Yeah. Michaela in the chat said the rights of the child should always come first. The child has a right to know both their mother and their father. They have a right not to be bought or sold. I agree. And that's exactly where I I think, unfortunately, surrogacy is just, uh, I would say maybe certain circumstances I'm willing to grant the premise of it could be okay. If, you know, a married couple maybe needed to use a surrogate for the sake of uh, medical complications. Um, but uh, even that, I haven't done much thinking on. I'd have to do a little bit more thinking yeah, on that specifically. For me, even in that position, my thoughts go to the pretty common factor, which is, okay, if there's a bunch of babies that need to be adopted and and they're going to be passed up so that you can have the baby that you want and defy biology in order to get it. Mm. I kind of have a hard time with that. And and my wife and I have agreed that we want to adopt children regardless of our own ability to reproduce, but we are prioritizing our own reproduction if possible. But if that is not able to take place due to whatever medical complications, I mean, that's yet to be foreseen. But if that were the case, then we will not hesitate to adopt. And I, I think that's a more responsible course of action than to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get what I want and defy my bodily limitations. But that, I think for us, goes back to a a faith issue where I trust the Lord to open my wife's womb in his timing by his ability to manipulate our biology and bring healing to our bodies. So I, I know for us, we would not consider surrogacy as even an option Hmm. yeah yeah and like i said that's not something i've put too much thought for but i definitely would say that it's it it would need to be very specific what was that so you're over there breeding like a bunny of course yeah exactly exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh i don't know it's interesting these bioethic questions are are really interesting and unfortunately to dan's point earlier it's something that we have to start thinking about because apparently there's, uh, there's AI coming, there's humanoids coming. I mean, my goodness, the amount of things that we are going to be dealing with in the coming decades, 
I mean, we're, we're kind of at the point where we're about to have another um, industrial revolution sort of happen in the, in the realm of, of, of AI. I mean, I think our world's going to be completely different even 10 years from now. Um, you know, it, it will be probably bigger than even like when the iPhone uh, hit the market and smartphones became a thing. And we have to start figuring out these questions. And it's good that you asked me, Michael, because that's an area that I definitely need to do more thinking on because... Yeah, it's not a question that I've received before, but it's a question that is going to become more and more common as we continue to go down this this uh, time in history that we're living in. Yeah. yeah. Any closing thoughts, gentlemen? All right. <laughs> We've done it. We've solved all the problems of the universe. We are able to now Thank go goodness. to bed and rest easy knowing that uh, we have solved everything and uh, none of you are having any trouble ever again. So thank you everyone for joining us. We really do appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. Dan, where can people go to keep up with you and everything that you're doing? All my work every day is at infowars.com, borderhawk.news. You can find me on Twitter at Real Dan Lyman, L-Y-M-A-N, or at Borderhawk News. Awesome. Michael, where can people find you? I'll be in the library reading about the uh, rhetorical criticisms of the book of Ephesians and learning Hebrew. Excellent. All right. Well, Godspeed on that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We really appreciate it. If you're listening to Spotify or Google, feel free to join us sometime in the chats on Rumble or YouTube on a Monday night, 8 p.m. Central. Um, we are actually not going to be live for a couple of weeks. We have some pre-recorded material because, uh, to Michael's point, um, I'm I'm uh, I'm with child, not myself, of course, but Connor, I am with child. You are with child. <laughs> You look fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I, had I thought get, we agreed I had this wasn't possible. <laughs> well, you guys would be shocked. It is 2023. Connor is a birthing person. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Hopefully you got a laugh at the end there for some serious topics that we had tonight. But uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, we'll see you next time. And to be clear, Connor's wife will be having the child. <laughs> yes. Let's throw that. In case anyone is doubting. <laughs> All righty. We'll see you.